0: you reading this morning from Genesis chapter 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female, also seven each of the birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days I will cause it to rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood waters were on the earth. So Noah, with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives, went into the ark because of the waters of the flood, of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds, and of everything that creeps on the earth. Two by two, they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up. And the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was on the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two, of all flesh, in which is the breath of life. So those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Now the flood was on the earth forty days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. The waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed fifteen cubits upward, and, all, and the mountains were covered, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and every man. And in who, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive, and the waters prevailed on the earth one hundred and fifty days. Well, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Professor of Old Testament theology at Westminster Seminary, I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce his name because I will get it incorrect. Ian, and then some Scottish thing that I cannot say correctly. But he says this, The Lord waits so long in his graciousness that people think he cannot judge. But when he does come in judgment, it is so decisive that it seems as if he cannot show mercy For this is not the sudden anger of an irritable temper, easily inflamed but equally easily pacified. This is deliberate, measured wrath, following a full investigation of the facts. There can be no last-minute appeals or reprieves, for there is no higher court to whom appeal can be made, and no pertinent facts have been overlooked in reaching the verdict." Well. As we come to the text of Genesis 7 this morning, we see the wrath of God poured out against the sinfulness of mankind with a calmness that almost obscures the reality of what is happening here. We're told of the death of every man, woman, child, and animal on the face of the entire earth. Accepting only those who found refuge in the ark. it's, It's a scene that for some reason we choose to paint on the wall of the nursery in the church. It's a scene of utter destruction, devastation, and death. It's a display of God's power and wrath that has only been surpassed once in the history of the world in the death of Christ and which for its physical destructiveness will only be matched once at the end of time. But there is much more here in Genesis 7, in these 24 verses, than just the wrath of God. Here we see the eternal plan of God at work. We we see images and shadows of Christ throughout. And we see his saving grace shining brightly in the midst of the darkest storm in the history of the world. So let's take a look at the events of chapter 7, make note of some of the details that call our attention to themes in the text and see how these details are there, not to drive us to despair in the face of God's wrath, but rather to give us hope in His grace the basic events of chapter 7 are, are pretty easy to grasp. Noah has completed construction of the ark, and so God tells him that the day of wrath is upon him, and he is to take his family and the animals and enter the ark. He tells them again how many of which animals to take, and when they are all safely aboard, the flood comes. The deluge lasts for 40 days. The entire earth is covered with water so that everything dies. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. We're told in verse 23. And the floodwaters remain on the earth for 150 days. That's five months. Five months the earth is being washed and cleansed of the filth of man's sin. And then the chapter ends So that's a basic summary of the events, but there are some very important details here, some of which we find in chapter 7 and some of which we're actually going to go back to chapter 6 to pull out. But these details uh, call our attention to some important things. First, notice that God directs Noah concerning the animals. He instructs him to take them in pairs, male and female, so that they may Repopulate the earth after the flood. Look at verses 2 and 3. You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female. Two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female. Also, seven each of the birds of the air, male and female. Why? To keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. So, even with the announcement of The great day of God's judgment and wrath. The destruction of all living things. There's still a note of hope. The world will once again teem with life when the judgment has ended. This is a principle that we see throughout the scriptures. God's discipline of his children is redemptive. It's aimed at their restoration. Even his judgment of the wicked is not the end of all things. But merely the purifying of all things so that things can be made new in a new creation. And in the end, this is the case, of course, when the creation will be purified by fire and a new heavens and a new earth established in sinless perfection. So even in the face of impending judgment, we're given hope right here at the very beginning of the chapter. <clears throat> Notice also that God instructs Noah to bring only two each, a male and his female, of the unclean animals, but seven of the clean animals. Now, commentators disagree over whether, what the exact number is. Uh, Some suggest that this is three pairs and then one additional male to be used for sacrifice. Others say, no, it's seven pairs of male and female. Either way, what interests me is not the number, but the distinction between clean and unclean. In our familiarity with the rest of the Scriptures, we don't question that distinction. But this is the first time it's mentioned in the text of Scripture. Nowhere have we been told up till now that there was such a distinction between clean and unclean animals or which animals go in which category. But the text seems to indicate that Noah knew. Noah knew which animals were clean and which ones were unclean. We know from previous chapters that mankind were offering sacrifices. Even Cain and Abel were offering sacrifices So the fact that they are to bring more of the clean animals, the ones that are used for sacrifice, is a warning that this judgment that will cleanse the earth in the flood will not do away with the wickedness of man's heart. Noah carries that sinful nature with him. It is passed on to his offspring. There will be a continuing need for sacrifices even after the flood. But there is a sense of renewal happening here. We're told in chapter 2 that God brought the animals to Adam so that Adam could name them. Since chapter 2, verse 19. But now, in verses 8 and 9, we read, Of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds and of everything that creeps on the earth, two by two, they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah Noah did not have to travel all over the globe cataloging and gathering up all these animals. God brought them to him, just as he had with Adam, which shows that history really does repeat itself. Adam was the first man created in a state of righteousness. Noah is the only righteous man in his generation. God brought the animals to Adam to name them. God brings the animals to Noah to preserve them. Adam and his wife were told to be fruitful and to fill the earth. Noah and his family will be told to be fruitful and repopulate the earth. Adam sinned in a garden. Noah will sin in a vineyard. I'm getting ahead of myself, but you get the point. There are obvious points of connection between Adam and Noah. There's a new creation happening, a reset. But notice also the duration of this judgment that is coming upon the world. We're told in verse four, for after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. This is then again repeated in verse 12. And the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And in verse 17, now the flood was on the earth 40 days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark and it rose high above the earth. And we've seen how important it is when we see repetition in the scriptural narrative. It's meant to draw our attention to something. First, it tells us that the judgment of God was not poured out in an impassioned fit of rage all at once, but it was, as the quote I shared at the beginning, measured. It was predetermined wrath. Just like he didn't have to take six days to create, God didn't have to take 40 days to flood the earth. He could have done it in a day. He could have done it in an hour. He could have done it in 80 days. He chose to do it in 40 days. His measured wrath was poured out over the course of these 40 days. Consider what this must have been like for those outside the ark. Noah had preached to them for 120 years of coming judgment. God had told him there would be a flood. I'm sure he mentioned that in his preaching. They had not listened. They had ignored his warnings. Jesus tells us in Luke that they ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. They ignored the warnings. They, they went about life as usual. And then the flood came. And, and how it came in verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. First, the fountains of the great deep are, are broken up. If you'll remember, on the third day of creation, God gathered the waters together into the seas and brought forth the dry land. And it seems that he, at that point, restrained the waters, that they would not cover the dry land. But now, those restraining seals have been broken and the water gushes forth in a destructive torrent. And then something else happens, something which is commonplace to us, but must have been frightening to them, it began to rain. Water falls from the sky for the first time in their lives. Can you picture the chaos, the confusion, and the panic that this must have caused? And note that the flood took 40 days to reach its full height. That means that the low valleys began to fill with water first. I'm sure people moved to higher ground, as they do during a flood. But the rain kept coming. The water kept rising higher and higher. And they kept moving to higher ground. Some were swept away in the flood. Children, elderly, all of them dying in the surging floodwaters, unlike anything they had ever seen or imagined. The giants and the mighty men that we read about last week couldn't save them. They couldn't stop the floodwaters. And they weren't alone. As you imagine them looking for higher ground, looking for safety and refuge, the earth is full of animals that would instinctively do the same thing. All of these animals stampeding for higher ground and crowding into whatever dry space they can find above the water crying out with all of their varied animal cries of fear. It must have been utter chaos. And for days, several weeks even, this continues. Fewer and fewer people remain. There's less dry land to flee to. Some were no doubt clinging to bits of debris getting tossed about in the waves until they tired out and slipped to their death beneath the water. (coughs) Many had time to consider the warnings that Noah had preached to them over the course of 120 years, warnings that they had dismissed as the rantings of a madman. And yet here they were dying in the flood of God's wrath, just as Noah had warned them. The scene inside the ark can't have been a whole lot better. The pounding of the rain, the crash of the thunder. Can you imagine when the ark, this massive vessel, begins to move for the first time? begins to get tossed around on the waves. Maybe they even hear the occasional cry of despair and death from outside the walls of the ark. must have been a terrifying time for all. So why 40 days? Calvin suggests two reasons. First, he says to firmly fix the memory of the flood in the minds of Noah and his sons so that they would be able to pass down To the next generations, the sheer magnitude of God's wrath and judgment against sin. Second, so that the wicked who had ignored the warnings for 120 years might have time to contemplate their fate under the just judgment of the Almighty. I would suggest a third reason in addition to those two. Forty is to become a very important number in the Bible. 40 days of rain as the wrath of God is poured out on the earth in preparation for Noah and his family to enter a creation made new. 40 days Moses is on the mountain with God receiving the law as a new nation is created. 40 years of judgment in the wilderness on a rebellious generation before they are entering the new promised land. 40 days in the desert before Christ enters the work of his public ministry to create something new, the church. God could have done it in more or less than 40 days, but he chose to bring the flood over the course of 40 days so that a pattern might be seen that would call our attention to these other mighty acts of God in judgment and in grace. And since we're noting patterns and repetitions, let me call your attention to two others. At the end of chapter 6, we are told of Noah's obedience. In verse 22, thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. This theme is continued in chapter 7. In verse 6, we read, Noah was 600 years old, not verse 6, verse 5, and Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Then in verse 9, two by two, they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And then in verse 16, so those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Well, clearly there is something we are intended to see. This is repeated four times, God's commandment. What we are to see here is that salvation from the flood of God's wrath is found in obedience. Only those who obeyed God were saved from the flood. We're told in the New Testament that the coming day of judgment at the end of the age will be the same. In 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 and 8, it says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel Of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then this raises the question what does it mean to obey the gospel? Well, it means to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, the one who obeyed the law of God perfectly on our behalf. So we are saved through obedience, the obedience of Christ believed on in obedience to the gospel. And apart from faith in Christ, God's judgment is as unavoidable as the great flood. We read in chapter 7 again four times that the waters prevailed. In verse 18, the waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. Verse 19, and the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. Verse 20, and the waters prevailed 15 cubits upward and the mountains were covered. And then in verse 24, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. There is no escape from the flood of God's wrath except in the shelter and safety of the ark. So let's talk about the ark. What an amazing work of God's grace in its design and in its purpose, and also in how it foreshadows our salvation in Christ. First of all, note, this is a big boat. People disagree over exactly which cubit was used, the Hebrew cubit, the Egyptian cubit. Any way you look at it, this is a massive ship, at least half the width of a football field and one and a half times the length of a football field. 75 feet wide by 450 feet long, at a minimum. Three stories high, 45 feet tall. It only had to contain eight people, right? Why so big? Well, because it also had to house roughly 50,000 animals. No fish are included, obviously, just land animals and birds. Scientists tell us there are around 200,000 species of land animals and birds on the planet. But there are much fewer if they're taken by kind rather than by species. See, Noah didn't need to bring a pair of poodles and a pair of border collies. He just needed two dogs. In fact, he didn't even need two dogs and two wolves. He just needed two canines, two of canine kind. One pair of each kind, seven of the clean animals, to be used for food and sacrifice, totaling somewhere around 50,000 animals the average size of a full-grown animal taken across that entire spectrum would be a sheep. That would be the average size. But there's, it's not necessary that the animals all be full-grown. In fact, many of them probably were not because they needed to be fertile after the flood. So you didn't need two full-size adult elephants. You could have some young teenage elephants that would be ready to start bearing offspring shortly after the flood. But still, this is a lot of animals packed into a big boat, a boat whose details that we see in chapter 6 and 7 clearly direct our thoughts to salvation. Again, we deal with types and shadows, and the reality is Christ. Peter writes in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype, which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Peter says that the ark, the salvation of Noah and his family and the animals in the ark is a type, and that there is an antitype. Don't make the mistake of thinking that he said baptism was the antitype. It's not water baptism that is the antitype, but baptism or immersion into Christ that is the greater reality. John Calvin comments, We must notice what follows by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. By these words, he teaches us that we are not to cleave to the element of water, and that what is thereby typified flows from Christ alone and is to be sought from him. Matthew Henry makes it even clearer, saying, Noah's salvation in the ark upon the water prefigured the salvation of all good Christians in the church by baptism. That temporal salvation by the ark was a type. The anti-type whereunto is the eternal salvation of believers by baptism to prevent mistakes about which the apostle declares what he means by saving baptism, not the outward ceremony of washing with water, which in itself does no more than put away the filth of the flesh, but it is the baptism wherein there is a faithful answer (coughs) or restipulation of a resolved good conscience engaged to believe in, and to be entirely devoted to God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Noah's salvation from the flood of God's wrath in the ark was a type meant to point us to our salvation in Christ. So let us consider seven ways in which the ark points us to our salvation in Christ. First, the salvation was planned before the beginning. Notice that God gave Noah the command to build the ark 120 years before the rain came. He started in chapter 6. Wow, well, how gracious of God. He planned the salvation before there was a need for it. He planned ahead to meet that need before Noah even knew there was a need. God's plan of salvation... For us is the same, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, Ephesians 1.4. Revelation 13 verse 8 tells us that Christ was slain from the foundation of the world. Our salvation was willed, planned, and decreed by God before the first day of Of creation, long before Adam sinned, long before we needed a Savior, it was already God's plan. Just like the ark was planned and the command given to Noah long before the rain fell. Second, the ark was God's design. Note that Noah was given instructions to build the ark, and God didn't just say to him, Noah, build a boat. He actually gave him a design. He wasn't left to figure it out on his own. In chapter 6, verse 14, God told Noah, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, and its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark. You shall finish it to a cubit from above and set the door of the ark in its side You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. God gave him exact dimensions, instructions. Noah didn't come up with the idea for the ark. He didn't come up with the dimensions. He didn't come up with the floor plan. It was all God's plan of salvation. The same is true of our salvation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is God's design that he send his own son to live and die in our place. We didn't come up with that. God did. It's God's design that we be saved by faith in Christ and in his work and not by our own efforts. Peter preaches in Acts 2, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the predetermined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. The predetermined purpose and foreknowledge of God. The cross was God's design. It wasn't the Romans' idea. It wasn't the Jews' idea. The work of Christ was planned long before the incarnation. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Saints, your salvation was the design and plan of God before he even began the work of creation. Long before you were conceived or drew your first breath, God had decreed your salvation. That should be a great comfort to you in the midst of the storms of life, to know that your salvation is not an afterthought. It's not God's reaction to what went wrong. This was God's eternal decree to save you in Christ. Note number three, that there is one way of salvation. Only those who are in the ark are saved. There's no other way to be saved from the flood but in the ark. And there is only one way to get in that ark. It had one door. One door. In chapter 6, verse 16, you shall make a window for the ark. You shall finish it to a cubit from above and set the door of the ark in its side. Salvation was only found in the ark, and there was only one way to enter that salvation, and that is through the door. this points to the fact that there is but one way of eternal salvation, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12. In fact, Jesus even uses this language of a door in reference to himself, saying in John 10.9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus repeatedly makes these sort of exclusive claims to be the only way of salvation. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, sadly, this exclusivity of Christ has been lost in many churches today. The Ligonier 2022 State of Theology Survey, which was published last week, included statements that people had to respond to, whether they agreed or disagreed with them. One of those statements was this, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Sadly, 58% of evangelicals agreed with that statement. Only 27% disagreed. And the rest were confused. That is sad. The verses that we just read above clearly show that the biblical teaching on the matter is that Jesus is the only way of salvation. There is no salvation in Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism or any other way but through Christ. Fourth, note that salvation is God's work and not our own. The reason that salvation must be the way God says and not the way that we might want it to be is that it's not our work. We don't get to decide how salvation works because we can't save ourselves, only God can. If you look at chapter seven, verse 16, it says, so those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him and the Lord shut him in. Noah couldn't even shut the door on his own. Now consider how massive this door must have been to bear up and support all the traffic of 50,000 animals entering the ark. Now Noah may have engineered some mechanism for closing the door but it needed to withstand an immense amount of pressure and a lot of water and it needed to be sealed tight. That water can't get inside. If it does Everything inside the ark drowns. So in order to preserve man and animals from the floodwaters, God shuts the door and seals it. This is a picture for us of the nature of salvation as the work of God alone. When once we have fled to Christ for refuge, we, Peter says, are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. It is by his grace we are saved and it is by his power that we are preserved. What a blessed relief to know that your salvation is sure because he is faithful. It doesn't rest on your works to ensure and preserve your salvation. It rests on Christ. If it rested on us, we'd all be in trouble. It rests in the finished work of Christ and in his continued power and faithfulness. Thanks be to God that we are kept by his power and not by our own. Fifth, salvation. Well, actually, I'm not going to give you this point yet. It'll lose its rhetorical power if I do. There's a detail in the construction of the ark that astonished me this week. Think of the torrent of water surging up from below and the deluge of water pouring out of the sky as it rains for 40 days and 40 nights. It's a lot of water. The entire earth is covered with water. One of the most important aspects of the construction of this ark would be the waterproofing. It's got to stay dry on the inside. That water cannot get through. It has to be sealed And so God instructs Noah in chapter 6, verse 14, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Now what's interesting about this is not how sticky it might have been, though I do wonder about that. The whole thing is covered with pitch. Can you imagine how sticky that was? But the interesting thing about this is the word that is used there are two hebrew words for pitch or resin or tar that are used in reference to waterproofing like this both of those words are used in exodus in the account of baby moses the only other place by the way where an ark is mentioned of this sort we have the ark of the covenant but this sort of ark exodus 2 verse 3 but when she could no longer hide him She took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, and put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. There are two words there. The word, this translated pitch here, the Hebrew word, zephet, and it means pitch or resin, like you would get sap out of a tree. The other word, which is translated in the New King James uh, as asphalt, is the word for tar, himar. And we see that word used in the construction of the Tower of Babel, which we'll get to in a few weeks. It's also mentioned in Genesis 14 when Abraham is rescuing Lot and his enemies. Some of them flee from him and fall into tar pits and are killed. What's interesting is that neither of those words is used in the construction of the ark in Genesis chapter 6. The word that is used in chapter 6, verse 14, is the Hebrew word kefar. Now this word is used over a hundred times in the rest of the Old Testament. This is the only place it is translated as pitch. The word literally means to cover. So a literal translation might be cover it with a covering inside and out. But the word is normally translated by one English word. And I'll read one verse to you where the word is used three times But remember, it's used this way over a hundred times in the remainder of the Old Testament. Exodus 30, verse 10. And Aaron shall make an atonement upon the horns of it once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonements. Once in the year he shall make atonement upon it throughout your generation. It is most holy unto the Lord. Stored for atonement that's used in the construction of the ark. Now, the idea of an atonement is, is that your sins are covered by the blood of the sacrifice. It's translated atonement everywhere else, but here it is a covering for the ark. When God wanted to describe the process by which the ark was made watertight in order to protect and preserve those within it from the flood of God's wrath, he used the word for atonement. Since the ark is a type of our salvation in Christ. This becomes a beautiful picture of the protection that we are afforded from the wrath of God by the covering or atoning of Christ's blood. Henry Morris comments, Whatever the exact nature of this pitch may have been, it sufficed as a perfect covering for the ark to keep out the waters of judgment, just as the blood of the Lamb provides a perfect atonement for the soul. Arthur Pink noted, It is remarkable that this word, which should be employed for the first time in Scripture in connection with the ark, as though to teach us that a shelter from God's wrath can be found only in the atoning blood. What a glorious detail the Holy Spirit inspired into the writing of the Genesis account to use the history of the flood and God's judgment on the sins of mankind and the construction of the ark to point the way to our salvation from the flood of God's wrath by the covering of our sins in the atoning blood of Christ. Number six, the storm of God's wrath fell on Christ. God's wrath against the sins of mankind were poured out in the great flood. Noah and his family and the animals are sheltered safely within the ark. Likewise, the wrath of God for our sins is poured out on Christ as he hangs on the cross, and it is in him that we find safety and refuge. The Psalms, speaking prophetically of Christ, record, you have laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the depths. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. Christ bore the storm of God's wrath for us, so that we might be safe in him. And then the final point of correspondence between the ark and our salvation in Christ is found in the very first verse of our text. Then the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Now the point is not Noah's righteousness. Noah is righteous, we said last week, because of the grace of God. There's a distinction between Noah and the rest of the world around him. But the point of correspondence here is that God commanded Noah to build an ark. He instructed him on in how it should be built, which animals and how many to take into it. But when the day of wrath came, the day when God would unleash the deluge upon the earth to kill all living things, The day in which those wicked men who had ignored the preaching of Noah for long, long years would finally come face to face with the wrath of God. When that day came, God did not say to Noah, Noah, go into the ark. You'll be safe in there while I destroy everything out here. That's not what he said. He said, come into the ark. Come. Come. It's a gracious invitation to communion with God himself. Safety from the wrath of God is not found in departing from God as the wicked would do, but rather safety from the wrath of God is found in getting as close to the love of God as possible. And that only happens because God graciously invites us into his love. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And what precious promises are given regarding our coming to Christ. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Our salvation is all by the grace of God. And we have this assurance That if the Father has given us to the Son, we will come by His design. And when we come to the Son, we will be welcomed and not cast outside to face the flood of God's wrath alone. The ark was God's plan, it was God's design, God's command, and it was God's grace to Noah. The cross of Christ was God's plan, it was God's design, God's command. And it is the the supreme display, both of God's wrath towards the sins of men, but also his grace to sinners. Salvation from the flood of God's wrath is found only in the grace of God himself. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let's pray.